from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this first weekend of August. I'm Time Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Fertilizer price freefall after last year's sticker shock. Why the sudden shift? We look at uh, nitrogen prices, some of the big ones, uh, ammonia, uh, 28 uh, UAN products, 30 to 50 percent lower than where we were last year. A tall order. He is 55 feet tall, so once you get up onto the platform, it's kind of overwhelming how big he is. A giant effort to pay tribute to an iconic creation. We're traveling the countryside with Andrew McRae. We'll meet an avid farmall collector who loves to show off his collection in the sunflower state and in John's world. Critical mass in rural America. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when blood, sweat, and tears meet rain, wind, and sun. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news, the high heat increasing the impact of drought again on key crops and impacting crop condition ratings this week. Corn condition ratings are now at 55% good to excellent, down two percentage points from last week. Soybeans, those are 52% good to excellent, also down two points. You can see Missouri faring the worst. Just 25% of the corn crop there is rated good to excellent and just 28% of the soybeans are rated the same. Russia appearing to still be targeting Ukrainian grain exports, hitting a port city with drones this week along the border with Romania. Ukrainian's infrastructure minister reporting about 40,000 metric tons of grain, which was expected by the countries of Africa, China and Israel, was damaged in the attack. The strikes happening in Ismail and on the Danube River that forms the Ukrainian-Romanian border. In the past two weeks, dozens of drones and missile attacks have targeted the port of Odessa and the region's river ports, which are being used as alternative routes to move grain out of the country. Three Ukrainian ports along the Danube are currently operating. The attacks happening after Russia ended the Black Sea grain deal. In a phone conversation this week, Turkey's president told Russia's Vladimir Putin he would seek to restore the initiative, referring to the deal as a, quote, bridge of peace. Leaders for Ukraine and Croatia have agreed on a possible plan to use Croatian ports to move grain out of Ukraine. They would utilize ports on the Danube River and the Adriatic Sea. Ukraine's foreign ministers saying they will now work to build the most efficient routes to the port. Well, the nation's third biggest U.S. trucking company, essential to the supply chain in the U.S., shut down operations and is filing for bankruptcy. Yellow, formerly known as YRC Worldwide, has been a billion dollars in debt. Earlier this month, the company was able to avoid a strike by 22,000 Teamsters workers. During the threatened strike, the company warned it was cash poor, and the situation prompted companies to shift their transportation needs away from yellow, resulting in an 80% decline in business. It laid off hundreds of non-union employees last Friday, yellow once serving prominent clients such as Walmart and Home Depot. Another round of dairy margin coverage payments will soon be coming to dairy producers. And that's with milk prices so low, those payments could be big. June's DMC income over feed cost calculation is setting a new record low. It comes in at 365 per hundredweight. Milk covered at the 950 level will see an indemnity payment of about $4,300 for each million pounds enrolled. And with milk prices still low throughout July, another large DMC payment is expected next month. 
cautiously optimistic. That's how economists read the latest survey results from the Ag Economy Barometer. The July index rising two points to 123. The survey of more than 400 ag producers from Purdue University and the CME Group shows farmers are indeed a tad more optimistic this month. The index of their perceptions of current conditions rose five points, while the expectations for future rose one point. The improving outlook comes amid price volatility, weather uncertainty, and rising interest rates. Despite those interest rates, farmers are still more positive when it comes to making big capital investments. The Farm Capital Investment Index rose three points this month to a reading of 45, and then the index is now nine points higher than it was a year earlier. Two-thirds, roughly 65% of the producers in the survey said they expect to see interest rates rise over the course of the next year. This month's survey also asked farmers about expectations for 2024 cash rents. 25% of farmers said they expect cash rents to climb next year compared to 2023. And of those 25%, nearly one-third expect rates to increase up to 5%, and nearly half thinks rates could climb 5 to 10%. A growing number of people simply can't eat meat without getting sick, and it's all from a tick. New numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show thousands more Americans are testing positive for alpha-gal syndrome. It's a condition spread by tick bites that causes allergic reactions to eating red meat. In fact, the agency just announced up to 450,000 people in the U.S. may have been affected by the issue since 2010. Well, with some areas getting rain this week, it's also bringing out the weeds. And Farm Journal wants to know which weed in your fields do you love to hate? You can take our agweb.com survey by using the QR code on your screen. That's it for the news. Some of you saw a break from the high heat, but for others, you just continue to bake. We'll see if there's any relief in sight with your forecast next. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us this weekend. Matt, even with significant rains developing over portions of the Midwest and Plains, the latest drought monitor showed conditions across the country grew slightly worse, with the southwest and central plains seeing temps 4 to 7 degrees above normal for this past week. Do you see a break in this high heat? Yeah, we'll talk more about uh, the possible break in the heat coming up in just a little bit. I want to focus on uh, what we were just talking about regarding the drought monitor. Now, this is the root zone map, so we're looking at a soil moisture, how, how much the rain or moisture is actually in the soil, and it matches what's going on with that the latest drought monitor. We're in that very dry, if not extreme category in the portions of Iowa, also in Minnesota and the Dakotas. We'll get some relief and as you'll see, it'll come in two ways. So first, a break in the heat for those locations and some rainfall details on that in just a little bit. We've had some help in regards to the drought and uh, keeping uh, some moisture in the soil. Now, Michigan into Indiana, Illinois, a little bit into Ohio and especially down here into Tennessee and Kentucky. We've been inundated with so much water that we're actually seeing some blue pop up there which is in the wet category. So let's go and look at the uh, temperature outlook. When's that break in the heat going to come through? It's not going to be for everyone. I mean, it is still summer that in and across the United States and the heat is going to stay right where it's been all summer long. So Texas, Louisiana, back into the south and to the east, a pocket 
of cooler air starts to come in. And what this signals is a soft or a shallow trough developing across the United States towards the end of this weekend and next week. And as I mentioned, that's going to bring two things, cooler temperatures and the potential for some widespread rain. Now, so you look at the precipitation outlook, and this is one of the better maps we have seen this season in that a large portion of the United States uh, will be at normal, if not wetter than normal conditions between August 8th and August 12th. So in that four day period, we expect some energy to come through the jet stream from the west to the east. It's not going to dive that far down to the south. And one of the reasons why we stay dry into the four corners but this will spread some much needed rainfall in and across the United States, uh, a bigger system than we've seen the past few weeks. Rather than uh, a shower or thunderstorm here and a shower or thunderstorm there, this is going to be a little bit more expansive. So let's look at it. This is the jet stream coming up on Sunday. When I say shallow, that's exactly what this is. This white line digging just down to the south of the Dakotas, enough energy and moisture enough heat to produce some showers and thunderstorms. So by Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of next week that that dip starts to level out, but we are going to see some cooler air and some rain chances right along that uh, that zone, uh, that gradient between the heat and that cooler air. And there's the jet stream on Monday as you go into Tuesday, we start to see another push of some energy coming through. And there's your trend for the cooler than average temperatures and the possibility of more widespread rain. Thanks, Matt. Well, were the rains across the Midwest what took the wind out of the grain markets this week? Our marketing roundtables are next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We have Shelby Myers with Ever Ag making her debut here on U.S. Farm Report this weekend, as well as Arlen Suderman. I guess I could call you seasoned at this point, Arlen. I've lost count how many times we've had you on the show. Appreciate both of you being on. Arlen, let's start off with you this week. We saw a lot of downward pressure on the markets despite things heating up between Russia and Ukraine, a drop in crop conditions. So what is pressuring the markets? Yeah, and it really goes back to Fitch's downgrading of U.S. credit, um, going to a double-A plus instead of a triple-A. Um, they follow Standard Poor's who did it back in, I think, uh, 2011. Moody's has not downgraded yet. Uh, I predict that that's coming at some point down the road. And it really goes back to them pointing out how oh, over the last 20 years, we've just had a series of spend, spend, spend and uh, borrow, borrow, borrow. And uh, in all these showdowns over the over the debt ceiling and the next one's going to be on January 1, 2025, right after the 2024 elections. And by that time, we're going to be looking at the interest on this year's debt eating a larger and larger portion of our federal budget. I don't think Congress will want to talk about it until after that election. But if you look at uh, usdebtclock.org, they are forecasting that the interest, the annual interest payments on our national debt four years from today will be over two and a half trillion dollars per year and continuing to rise. That'll be uh, almost triple what we spend on national defense by that time and well above what we spend on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. So bottom line is the markets are worried now with Treasury yields going higher um, this week following the downgrade, that credit's going to be tightening up, interest rates are going to be going higher, that's going to slow down the economy, that reduces demand for commodities, so the funds are selling the commodities in the face of that report. 
Well, near term, mm -hmm. Shelby, I mean, you look at a time when weather is the market mover. We've seen that. We've seen the situation in Ukraine that continued to, to move the markets. But this week we did have some key rains, but we still had that heat. We had declining crop conditions. Is weather a factor at all that these traders are watching right now when, you know, you have everything that, that Arlen mentioned that's hanging over their heads? Weather is certainly something that the markets are going to be trading on, especially moving from July into August. That is a key growing period, a key pollination period. When we're looking at soybeans in particular, that's when you're blooming and creating the pods that are going to generate yield. You know, something that we've seen, unless it's insanely catastrophic, a lot of the Ukraine and Russia news tends to be short lived at this point. You know, we really see some rallies throughout the day, but then those rallies are clawed back nearly just as quickly. Uh, and we're returning to trading on weather. Um, I think a lot of commodity prices are getting in position ahead of next week's report because uh, traditionally we've seen the August WASI report with yields that are well under uh, expectations of that final yield. Usually we underestimate the expectations uh, of what yield actually ends up being. And so uh, adjusting to those historical perspectives, the drought monitor today certainly showed that we have a, a relief in weather and, and drought, it, but not necessarily in the quantity of drought. Uh, we still see a lot of severe drought uh, that allows for uh, not as improved conditions. You know, Everag Insights, we are tracking the commodities in drought index and we've seen some relief, but it's that severity that we've seen uh, reduced, not necessarily the quantity. Okay, real quick, Arlen, Shelby mentioned that report next week. Do you expect USDA to update yield and what is Stone X's forecast at this point? Yeah, Stonex's August customer survey revealed uh, expectations for a 177 bushel yield for corn and 50.5 for soybeans. Now, 177 for corn, that's pretty much right where USDA was at in July. And, and our customers are asked to estimate what they think final yield in their territory will be. So that's where they think right now. I think there'll be a lot of movement between August, September, October on that number because there's going to be a lot of variability this year as we try to figure things out. But I think the key to that is with demand being so poor, we have plenty of corn to meet our demand. On soybeans, the other hand, 50.5 bushels per acre, if that verifies, would certainly leave us with a very tight balance sheet. All right, a lot more to talk about with next week's USDA report, as well as a look at demand. And we'll get into livestock as well. So stay tuned. We'll talk about that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. The Journal of Rural Sociology found during the pandemic, more people moved to rural places with a net migration of 0.43% between April 2020 and July 2021. And that compares to metropolitan areas that saw no change in net migration. But it wasn't a mass exodus with people leaving urban areas to move to the country like some expected. John Phipps explains. Looking at rural depopulation from a distance is unsettling. Here is the national picture showing the continued loss of residents in about half of America's counties last year, most of them rural. This continues the trend shown in the 2020 census. Seen at ground level, there is another process at work that I have long compared to a nuclear physics phenomenon, critical mass. Here's a greatly simplified explanation. Fissile material such as uranium emits particles spontaneously. In nature, most of the, these particles hurtle away. 
If the material is purified and packed densely, uranium emits neutrons, which then hit neighboring atoms, releasing enormous energy and freeing even more neutrons. Lather, rinse, repeat. This is labeled a chain reaction. There's a precise amount and density of fissile material where the neutrons generated from collisions of atoms match the number of neutrons lost to the surroundings. The chain reaction becomes self-sustaining. This required quantity is called critical mass. Managing the amount and structure can generate a controlled flow of energy, like in a nuclear power plant. The point is, there is a clear breakpoint with how much and what shape below which fission doesn't work. The concept of an absolute minimum amount of material, critical mass, has always struck me as applicable to social and, and cultural collections of people. There's a critical mass for groups. A baseball team has a critical mass of nine players, for example. Similarly for clubs, churches, community project teams, or any social organization. But like fissile material, groups can naturally decay below critical mass, essentially disappearing person by person. The analogy is not perfect, but in our smallest rural communities, the census is showing the lack of critical mass for an increasing number of community activities. This occurs despite economic conditions. Illinois is an example with, of a booming ag economy and relentless population loss in the same place. While uh, government funds and local economic resources can help, they can't fill the pews in meticulously maintained churches or the bleachers in shiny new gyms. With growing public antagonism to immigration and plummeting birth rates, where will the needed people come from? Like uranium, there is no substitute for the mass of population, and there is scant evidence the decades-old trend of rural depopulation will reverse to create the critical mass needed for self-sustaining communities. Thanks, John. An obsession with farmalls. We're off to Kansas to meet one avid collector in Tractor Tales next. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall. 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at farmall100.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. Come with me this week. We're headed to Kansas to visit with Melvin Snoke about his Farmall 350. Uh, I bought it because it had live power takeoff on it and uh, running a bush hog, it's just a lot easier to creep into something or you're getting a heavy, uh, heavy load to shift down a gear and keep power takeoff running. There's quite a bit of difference. The 300 was to replace the H's and the Super H, and it's substantially more power. The 350 replaced the M and was better than the M. It did have better brakes and it had live power takeoff and a number of features. And you know, M's did an awful lot of work too. They were a very popular farm all. Uh, build them for years. They're all gas, put a little gas in them and uh, they'll start right up. And they run economical, a gallon, gallon and a half, two gallon an hour if you're really working on it. That's cheap. 
these are easier to get on. If you're making fence or something like that, you know, one, two steps and you're up, you're ready to go. Swing your foot around the back of the seat, you're ready to go. The bigger ones, you climb up and down on those, you know, 40 times. <laughs> An old fellow gets tired. Well, last year, key fertilizer prices were the highest farmers had seen since 2008. This year, those prices plummeted to the lowest since 2004. So what's behind the sudden shift? That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. If you're currently debating whether to lock in fall fertilizer prices right now, you are not alone. Key fertilizer prices have been in a bit of a freefall this year. From the peak in 2022, prices today look much different, and it's forcing farmers to take a serious look at locking in what they can, even as they try to navigate the possible outcome of this year's crop walk into the one part of the field where there's actually some corn. The view from the road give glimpses of production problems for Kyle Sam. These outside rows, this is what I would expect it to look like as dry as it's been. But walk deeper into his central Missouri fields. The thing that really is amazing to me walking out here is normally when we would be this dry, you know, these plants are still green from top to bottom. And these green plants are deceiving. But Peel back the husks on ear after ear. That's not going to make much corn. We'll be lucky to even get any of that in the combine. And we've got an ear here that this one pollinated, um, kind of. So we've got a lot of misses on part of it. We've got plants right next to it that, you know, the silks are starting to dry up. And you'll find proof that Mother Nature has been extremely unkind. It's pretty widespread for us. I don't think I have a single field that I don't have some issues in uh, to varying degrees. As you can see, the drought is diminishing his outlook for harvest. You know, we have a few kernels on this year, but by and large, we didn't pollinate at all. And the pollination problems were hidden until just a couple weeks ago. It was probably about 10 days ago. Um, we started kind of checking a few years to see what we had out here and I was like, man, this this doesn't look good and started checking more. And before it was all said and done, you know, we were out in every field kind of seeing what we had. And, and 10 days ago was kind of a bad day. The realization was a bit of a gut punch for Sam, especially considering he didn't spare expenses on inputs. We were one good rain away from from having some corn. And we went ahead and, you know, we had already put fungicide on corn. The forecast looked good or some rains that never materialized. Samp and other farmers planted what could be one of their most expensive crops ever this year between inputs and other inflation-fueled necessities on the farm. And it wasn't until spring until some of those input prices started to fall. Now we look at uh, nitrogen prices, some of the big ones, uh, ammonia, uh, 28 uh, UAN products, uh, 30 to 50 percent lower than where we were last year. Ohio State's Barry Ward tracks prices of inputs and other farm expenses. For my data, Anhydrous ammonia come down about 50% since last year at this time, about 30% since March. 
the least is the phosphorus fertilizer products, uh, right around 20%. The price shift was sudden and something Rabobank's Sam Taylor has also been tracking. If you look at the affordability index, it is gone from being atrocious last year, you know, that ratio to the price of fertilizers to the underlying commodity to actually one of the best it's been in decades. According to this affordability index from Rabo, Taylor says the wholesale price of nitrogen, phosphorus and potash has gone from last year's sticker shock when NPK prices were the highest since 2008 to now dropping to the lowest since 2004. There is supply, there is inventory. So farmers shouldn't necessarily, unless something goes cataclysmic in the world, shouldn't see a huge price correction. According to FarmDoc Daily's look at recent fertilizer price trends, major fertilizer products in Illinois began increasing in 2021 and peaked in the second quarter of 2022. That includes anhydrous ammonia topping out at $1,635 per ton last June and falling to $870 per ton last week. That's a 47% drop in just over a year. FarmDoc Daily shows the price of urea fell 50% during that time and liquid nitrogen is down 22%. Ward says the sharp decline for key fertilizer products is driven partially by falling crop prices. There's a high correlation there. Crop prices, as they move, fertilizer prices tend to follow. Um, it's not always a perfect correlation. He says lower commodity prices can cause some farmers to second guess the amount of fertilizer they buy. But the other major driver, the price of natural gas. We saw that uh, really fall out uh, in both North America and Europe throughout the winter. Uh, milder winters uh, was, uh, well, that was part of the driver. So those lower natural gas prices were, uh, were a key feature and a key factor in not only nitrogen prices, but also helping to soften some of our phosphorus fertilizer prices. This chart from FarmDoc Daily shows the correlation between natural gas and corn commodity prices and the price of anhydrous ammonia. Just like fertilizer prices, natural gas prices also peaked last summer. With ample supplies, it's now a question of if input prices stay relatively low through fall. It's it's tricky because there are a lot of uh, fundamentals at play and some that we really can't sort out. The whole Black Sea region, nitrogen, phosphorus fertilizer coming out of Russia, that, that kind of an issue that was better and now it's likely going to be worse. Um, so that even though we don't get a lot of product in North America directly from those sources, a lot of that flows elsewhere, it does impact the overall global supply that impacts global prices. Ward says if growers are locking in fall fertilizer prices, he's also suggesting to get some crop sales on the books as other costs are forecast to climb. With fertilizer being a little bit lower, crop chem, uh, crop protection uh, easing a bit, you know, there, there's still this issue of escalating cash rents across the Midwest that are going to put pressure on, on growers. For Samp, drought is the biggest concern for the corn today but his hope is now turning to soybeans. I don't see a scenario where we can average 100 bushels on this farm, you know, farm-wide. I think we're probably looking probably more in the 60, 70 bushel range, assuming, you know, we do get a few rains here and there uh, in August. As 2023 seems to be a roller coaster and one riding on every forecast. I don't know, it's been a bizarre year. I say that every year, but this is another one. <laughs>
Ward says geopolitical issues are the biggest wild card for fertilizer prices, including the phosphate countervailing duty cases and ongoing issues with both Russia and Morocco. He says that's still causing some issues in the phosphorus fertilizer markets here in the U.S. All right, what about grain demand and meat demand? We'll talk about that in our marketing roundtables next. Welcome back, Shelby and Arlen rejoining us. All right, Shelby, next week we could see USDA make some revisions, but you look at longer term. Where does EverAg right now sit on what you think the crop production picture will look like in the U.S., as well as next week, you know, getting an update on, on prevent plant and those acres? What does EverAg think on that as well? Well, looking at the bigger scope of everything, especially with our clients telling us that boots on the ground, what's going on. Uh, on the corn side, we've seen a lot of stunted growth that what's typically a, a taller stock is cut by at least a third. And so um, our estimates right now have final corn yield for this year at 168 bushels per acre. Our final soybean yield about 48 and a half bushels per acre. Um, that's still a potential to move up. You know, most of that happens in August. So uh, keeping an eye on that estimate throughout, I could see it bumping up a bushel or two, uh, but nowhere near any of the highs that we'd expect. Uh, on the pl prevent plant acre side, you know, we're, we had a lot of delayed planting, however, not near as many record years as we've had, you know, 2019 was that record 20 million prevent plant, then we cut that in half the following year at 10 million prevent plant. Last year it was only 3 million. I estimate 2 to 3 million acres of prevent plant just because of some of the delays that we ran into early in this season. Arlen, we saw wheat harvest going on in areas like western Kansas. I mean, it is just rain and it's rain. Could we see any revisions in USDA's report, or do you think that's down the road? Yeah, USDA dropped their harvested acreage estimate as far as um, increased uh, um, abandonment in earlier this spring, but they haven't revised it since then. And we know that while we saw tremendous abandonment out west, we expect to see additional abandonment when we get the final small grain summary report on September 30th across much of the plains with a higher abandonment. Now, the acres that were not abandoned, they were able to harvest better than expected yields. So there's going to be some offset for it. USDA has been factoring in the higher yield in the monthly reports, but they have not been factoring in the lower acreage that we expect to eventually get there. So I do think that when we get September 30th, we'll get a little bit of a downward adjustment of total production numbers reflecting the higher yield, but lower harvested acreage. Shelby, as we see some of these export sales come in, really the market seems unfazed. Is it because the overall demand picture is so bleak or why is it not moving the market? Well, I think Arlen touched on it a little bit too. We're talking about kind of a tale of two balance sheets. On the soybean side, that's where a lot of these export announcements are coming in, and that's making our soybean balance sheet tighter and tighter. Um, it, you know, as I see this, a lot of it is going to China. China purchases a bulk of their uh, U.S. exports throughout the fall season. And so this is a time when we see some of those seasonal purchases, but I also expect some of this to be a little bit of uh, hedging bets, and that as that soybean soybean balance sheet gets tighter and tighter, uh, that price is going to rise. And so I think China is in the midst of doing some seasonal purchases, but also planning ahead uh, to try to avoid some of those higher prices. 
Um, on the corn side, yeah, we just continue to see a lackluster. And I think there's a multitude of factors that that's a reason why the market is paying attention to what's happening happening in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but as that progresses and we see opportunities for corn, especially to exit Ukraine and Russia, because that was what over 55% of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, as we see more opportunities for that to be offloaded or not, uh, we could see a little bit of demand pick up uh, on the global market. Okay, Arlen, I want to get into livestock, but real quick, next week, do you think USDA will make any adjustments on the export side? I, I do think that the, we may see another cut on uh, corn exports. I think they'll probably stick on soybean exports. The real cuts now going forward are going to have to be on new crop, especially for corn, but I don't expect USDA to do that for another several months, most likely. All right, tight cattle numbers. I mean, we know that USDA's last report, cattle on feed and cattle inventory showed that. Um, and as we look at, at hogs, you know, are we trading seasonally here, Arlen? What are your thoughts? Yeah, we started to see the hog market break this last week because the product market showed signs of breaking and then the cash market saw, got soft as well. And so seasonally, we tend to break the product market now, and that's what's going on. Now, we've, we've seen a, a very unusual year because of Prop 12, and I, you know, I think we're going to have to get that straightened out here over the next few weeks on just what the domestic demand is. And I think we're going to find out domestic demand for product is a little bit stronger than what the trade thinks, but we still are going season lower. But the market already has the October contract trading $24 below the cash index, so much of that's already priced in, maybe overdoing it a little bit here late week. Arlen Suderman, Shelly Myers, thank you guys, both of you, so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break, and then we're off to Minnesota to get the story behind the Jolly Green Giant, larger than life. That's American Countryside next. American Countryside on U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Nationwide and their farm certified agents. Founded by farmers nearly a century ago, Nationwide has the knowledge to help you succeed today and protect what's next for your farm or ranch at nationwide.com Andrew. He's an iconic figure 120 years old and one that's larger than life thanks to a Minnesota town. Jolly Green Giant is a staple in stores and as Andrew McRae shows us in American countryside this weekend, it was a tall order to bring him to life. In the 1970s, completion of Interstate 90 was taking place in southern Minnesota near the town of Blue Earth. Citizens were looking for something to lure people off the interstate and into town. One of the city fathers had an idea tied to a longtime company here. We'd had the Green Giant Canning Company for many years, so he contacted the president of Green Giant, who approved using the likeness of the giant, but said that we have to come up with all of our own funds. Citizens raised the funds quickly, and soon a company in Wisconsin was busy preparing a giant order. They had to bring him over in two loads because his arms are so big, they couldn't fit on the truck with his legs and body. So the giant came here in pieces, was assembled, and then eventually hoisted skyward in 1978 to coincide with the completion of Interstate 90. He is 55 feet tall, so once you get up onto the platform, it's kind of overwhelming how big he is. Megan has many interesting tidbits to share including the fact that before he was built, the public had seen only the giant's face on a can of vegetables, and that actually presented a challenge. They had never photographed him from behind, so they had to bring in an artist to figure out what his backside would look like. You can see all sides of the Jolly Green Giant here today, and many do. Plus, they can see memorabilia next door about the evolution of the giant, if you will. 
Estimates are that we get about 150 to 200,000 people just stopping through a year. The fire department comes to give the giant a bath once a year. He also sports a red scarf during the winter and occasionally wears other items to celebrate certain events. Many people in town have worked at the canning company over the years. Megan says it's a rite of passage for many kids to work a summer job during the busy packing season. For visitors here, the small museum next door does a great job of sharing a giant story. It's a room full of just amazing memorabilia, um, items that they have been willing to share with us showing the history of the canning company. This giant has been standing guard here since 1978. It's something that draws thousands of visitors to the city every year and also a tribute to the many farmers of the region who grow for the label. Traveling the countryside in Blue Earth, Minnesota, I'm Andrew McCray. Thanks, Andrew. And you can hear more of Andrew's travels at AmericanCountryside.com. Well, is water the new oil? That's customer support this week. Who should get our ever scarcer water? Water rights and water fights heated up as the drought depleted precious resources out west. And it's a debate that doesn't seem to be drying up. That's customer support this weekend. There are signs that water is the new oil. You've covered the subject of foreign land ownership and rightly noted that it's a very small percentage. I think the issue that we really need to address, especially in the southwestern states, is the purchasing of farmland by corporate entities that have nothing to do with farming, but who solely want to obtain the water rights that the purchase of, that, of the ground includes. The main, their main reason for purchasing the land is to have a resource that they can sell to the highest bidder. How long before hedge funds and corporations own all the water rights and the farmer and the public are left to be the highest bidder to do or to do without the needed resource? That's for David Marshall in Lafayette, Indiana. Well, as Mark Twain famously said, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting. While our arguably arcane water rights laws have provided thousands of billable hours for water lawyers in the West, I don't think we've seen anything yet. First in time, first in line may have seemed like a good idea centuries ago when rivers and groundwater appeared inexhaustible. The enormous use by modern agriculture, about 80% of our nation's water resources, is testing the practicality of those laws. I can't imagine modern lawmakers reforming those laws with needed speed, so the backup method of acquisition of water uh, for consumers is to buy the water needed from agriculture. Bluntly put, there is a price for every gallon, and many farmers are just now realizing how extremely valuable those gallons are. As I have argued in every land use debate, from solar panels to suburban development, with rare exceptions due to location or unique qualities, the rights of landowners should be preeminent to allow the market to redistribute those assets. Consider the rapidly growing cities of the Southwest, like Phoenix, spending millions to buy water rights from nearby farmers currently growing alfalfa in the desert to feed dairy cows when milk is being dumped in Wisconsin looks to me like an inefficient market hampered by regulation and unable to rationally allocate assets. Between our outdated milk pricing programs and water laws, the outcome you described is just capitalism's way of solving a problem. 
farming may always be the optimal use for our ever scarcer water. I think not, but this is a problem being solved by accountants, not lawyers. Thanks, John, and send your questions or comments to John at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. A rodeo goat on the loose and the wild chase to track him down. That's from the farm next. A goat that's been on the lamb for a couple weeks has been found. The entire community of Willisee County, Texas was searching for the missing rodeo goat, nicknamed Willie, ever since he escaped the pens at a youth rodeo. Willie was spotted a few times, but no one could seem to catch him. But rodeo officials say Willie is now safe and sound thanks to these two Willisee County cowboys. They say plans to award the two cowboys with their prizes are underway. Well, I doubt we'll see many cowboys this year on the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour that's set to kick off in just two weeks. And you're invited to attend the nightly meetings along the way. August 21st through the 24th is when the Pro Farmer Crop Tour is this year. We'll be starting, like always, from South Dakota in the west and Ohio in the east, with both legs finishing up the tour in Rochester, Minnesota. Michelle Rook and Chip Flory will be on the west hosting those nightly meetings. Andrew McRae and I will be with Brian Grady to cover the east. You can also watch the results virtually, but you can sign up to either attend in person to those nightly meetings or virtually. You can do that on the Crop Tour website. That's all the time we have this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.